Greetings, everyone. It's good to be here again after two long years. The CIA did not know. The FBI did not know. The NSC did not know. Naval intelligence did not know. No one in the media knew. No presidential administration, from Dwight Eisenhower to the present, knew. But my father before me and I did. In the very depths of the Cuban Missile Crisis, at the very time when Nikita Khrushchev was beating his shoe on the platform of the United Nations, I spoke before a live audience of more than 8,000 people in Texas, and I said war between the Soviet Union and the United States is not prophesied. We are not going to go to nuclear war with Russia. You will live to see the day when the Soviet Union and the United States may well be allied against a common enemy. For literally decades, I've been saying, the Berlin Wall will come down, Germany will reunify, the last chapter of European history has not been written, Eastern European nations will come out from behind the Iron Curtain, and there will emerge in Central Europe, including some of those very same Eastern European nations of East Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Bulgaria, Romania, a United States of Europe which will emerge as a supergiant of industry, of finance, and eventually a military power, and will be the ultimate downfall of the United States of America if we do not repent before our God. Way back in the early 1960s, and really even before, I was talking about Japan. I went to Japan in 1960 and wrote an article headlined on the front cover of the Plain Truth magazine, of which I was executive editor at that time, entitled Future Supergiant. I wrote it from Tokyo. I returned to Tokyo over the years from time to time, and I wrote another one which featured a picture of a Japanese supertanker called the Tokyo Maru, and the title of the article was Japan, Yankees of the Orient, talking about the burgeoning industrial development and growth and how they were tying up 99-year timber tracks and potash from Chile and oil from the Middle East and tin and cobalt and iron and molybdenum and so on, all around the world, that they are a vulnerable bicycle economy, a trading nation with an exposed juggler, and that eventually they're going to put to sea a nuclear-powered, nuclear-armed navy, and are going to once again have an overthrow of government, and the militarists are going to take over inside Japan. Now, right now, in the United States of America, we're in the midst of presidential campaigning, and we're hearing an awful lot of talk about protectionism and Japan bashing, and Americans are turning very ugly. My news has shown me recently that some Americans, becoming xenophobic and racist, are beginning to hurl epithets and slurs at Japanese people, who are good people, and hard-working people, and decent people, and they want the same things you want. Happiness, joy, a family, a future, a place to enjoy their life in the sun, and right now they don't have evil motives against the United States. They don't want our downfall. They just don't understand our politicians. They don't understand why their reward for frugality, for saving, for hard work, for dedication and loyalty to a work ethic, they don't understand why it is that Matsushita Electric or Mitsubishi or Nissan and they gather in a parking lot at 6 o'clock and do 45 minutes of calisthenics saying a powerful, nationalistic, sloganistic song, 
and then scream bonsai twice and rush in there like a bunch of sailors going to sea or a bunch of Air Force men manning the cockpits of their aircraft and work not only to get ahead, but work for the sake of their nation. And they don't understand why America, trying to export to Japan inferior products with sometimes at least 25 easily discernible factory defects in some of our automobiles. We were just explaining over a car that Mr. Sherry had rented and putting our fingers in a huge gap between the trunk lid and the trunk and looking at the way the doors don't fit and so on just, just moments ago here today in Austin. And the Japanese do not understand that. Now, what has happened in the last few years has not surprised millions of Americans who remember what my father was saying and what I've been saying from the 1950s onward. There were many, and of course the people in the Church of God International were not a bit surprised when the Berlin Wall came down. They were not a bit shocked or surprised. But George Bush was, and the FBI was, and the CIA was, and they took a lot of heat in the media for not even being able to project to the White House that Eastern Europe was going to go through a gigantic, bloodless revolution with the exception of one bitter little bloody struggle in Romania. But the rest of them, when you stop to think about the phenomenal events that have taken place within two years' time of that great, huge, monolithic Soviet socialist empire that had made incursions all the way from Angola to the Horn of Africa to all of Southeast Asia, the so-called domino theory that took us to war twice from World War II, and I was involved in one in Korea when we fought that war with one arm tied behind our back and went to war again in Vietnam. Why? To stop the so-called domino theory of the toppling of one nation after another in Southeast Asia to the communist forces. We tried to contain China by using Japan as a bulwark in the Middle East, or the Far East, I should say. We tried to contain the Soviet Russians in Russia by using Germany as a bulwark in the West, and we built both of those economies. It was not their doing that they relaxed and built up their burgeoning industries under an American nuclear umbrella while we protected them with our military forces. They are not insidious or guilty of some kind of a plot for doing that. We begged them to do it, and now we're beginning to get angry at them because they won't allegedly share their share of the load. I was just saying briefly at lunch with a group of us, wouldn't we have enjoyed it as Americans only one year ago if we'd seen a German Wehrmacht officer stroll in before the cameras down there in Saudi Arabia with a peaked cap, we remember, from World War II, and he would have been describing how they were going to defeat Saddam Hussein with their Japanese allies on their supercarriers out there in the Gulf. And he would have said, first we shall cut it off, and then we shall kill it. Wouldn't we have enjoyed that in America? Go get them, Germans. Yay, Japanese. As we saw smart bombs going down ventilator shafts with the X laser-guided missiles and so on. And they were Japanese products and German products smashing Saddam Hussein. And then congressmen like Sasser and all the other people who were in Japan bashing today and saying they ought to share their share of the load. They ought to pay for the burden. They ought to go out there and help us establish a new world order and go out there and fight wars for us and not cause us Americans to have to do it. You begin to wonder about the mentality of some of our short-sighted leaders who, if they are elected, will cause us to go to war with Japan within five years. There's a great big thick book out called The Coming War with Japan, and it is a shocker. Now, I urge you, because the majority of you did not raise your hands when Mr. Gross asked you about a subscription to 20th Century Watch magazine. If you look at that cover of the one issue he had, it shows a picture of a reunited Germany highlighted in the, in the heartland of Europe. And that article in the January issue had to do with the United States of Europe. 
The next cover showed a flight of four F-15s with the rising sun on their wings. They are not made by McDonnell Douglas. They're made under a license, which is merely a piece of paper in a file folder somewhere in the labyrinth of the Mitsubishi complex. I'm saying, I'm telling you, that every nut, every bolt, every screw, every piece of metal, the jet engines, the avionics, and every bit and piece of those aircraft that are more than two and a half times the speed of sound, you know what an F-15 can do? Let me just give you a little bit of a, an analogy. Mr. Sherrick and I spent a lot of hours in the cockpit of a Fanjet Falcon. I've flown 11 kinds of jets and 68 kinds of aircraft in my life. We flew across that Atlantic so many times we lost count. Looking down at the fjords of Iceland as we're up there at 39,000 feet, going perhaps on over to land and stop overnight in, in uh, Scotland and on our way down to the Middle East or Europe or wherever we were going. In a Fanjet Falcon, we had to step climb that aircraft because we had packs and bags and fuel, and it just would not go directly to 37,000 or 39,000 feet. We had to stop at about 31 or 33. And we're hanging there at an angle about like that until we burn off about half our fuel, and then we could climb up to 39. But in a G2, and by the way, that would take basically about 30 minutes. We were about a 1,000 foot a minute climb on the average. We'd clear out over the, the uh, border with Arizona by the time we got to altitude. We'd, we're 200 miles out, and we've been in the cockpit for quite a while by the time we got to altitude. Normal jet cruising altitude. But when I flew the G2... From a standing start, at the end of the runway, I could be to 41,000 feet in 14 minutes. Now, wow, was that a thrill. Fly that G2 and you rotate that thing, the deck angle just take your breath. But in an F-15, if they'd let me fly it, and oh, what a kick that would be, you go right off the end of the runway and you just raise the nose straight up and you go absolutely straight up to 65,000 feet in one minute. A lot of us don't have any idea of even, like from Jane's books on aviation and ships and so on, what these modern weapons are really like. So when I tell you that I'm showing you a flight on the cover of Japanese-built F-15s with young Japanese pilots, and that they've got a brand new Mitsubishi, not a zero, but a one this time, which is their own design, and when I tell you this book reveals that even though the Japanese have only been spending 1% of their gross annual product on defense, that 1%, because of the enormous size of the Japanese financial empire, is so much bigger that that 1% is bigger than France and Germany spend on arms combined. And most Americans don't know that. What I'm doing is making a pitch to you. You have nothing to lose. You came here. You went to the effort to put your body in a car, and you drove here, and you walked in this room, and here you are. It isn't going to hurt you a bit to grab that magazine and send that folder in and start reading these things about biblical prophecy, but there are also articles in there about the origin of the true church, about the apostasy of the first century, about Christian living, and other things that are going to be coming along. For instance, the next issue is going to have two articles on evolution, creation. You're going to see on the cover, Moonrise Over the Lunar Surface. Mr. Dart wrote a beautiful article about the complexity and the marvel, the intricacy of the human eye. And it complements my article on creation, how to prove there is a God. In January 1990, after I came back from our trip to Berlin, I went back and researched all of my bound volumes of the Plain Truth magazine, Good News magazine, Tomorrow's World magazine. I looked up a lot of my old sermon notes and got some quotes out of sermon tapes and television programs. 
And believe me, I only got the tip of the iceberg, but I ended up with just as a matter of space, I didn't want to go on and on, 54 separate quotations going all the way back to the 1950s, in which my father and I and other senior editors and writers at the Plain Truth magazine were saying, war with Russia is not prophesied. Russia is not the beast. Russia is not going to come into the Middle East and attack Palestine. During all these decades, Hal Lindsey and every other famous name I could mention on television and every other would-be prophet, seer, or prognosticator having to do with biblical prophecy in the Protestant mainstream of United States of America was saying, Russia is the beast. Russia is going to attack Palestine. And they weren't the only people. That's what the CIA said. It's what the defense industry thought. It's what every presidential administration thought. It's why you and I have been taxed virtually into the poorhouse while our nation has spent billions upon billions of dollars on every one of our defense systems in protracted Cold War to do what? To protect us against that huge, ominous threat that is Soviet Russia. It has disintegrated. It's gone. They got a whole new commonwealth. They're fighting over how to divide up the army. They're not going to have one army, the largest in the world. They're going to have two dozen armies before they're through over there. And while some people are still wondering about a nuclear threat and they're keeping their eye on that, some of those countries over there are even squabbling about who gets to possess how many portions of their nuclear weaponry. And it could very well be that eventually we will see what the Pope himself called for, and I've quoted him time and again, because, believe it or not, some of the descriptions of the United States of Europe have included the expression from the Urals to the Atlantic Wall. And if you remember your geography, Moscow is at this side of the Ural Mountains. So now that they are fragmenting, and now that the European white Russians are going to begin doing an awful lot more business, and their major trading party is already Germany, because Germany is going to be the provider and the supplier because their natural supply line just with rails and so on, or to the east. And here is this gargantuan market of people who are hungry and desperate for everything. And here is one of the most burgeoning industries in the world ready to provide them with all those goods and services they so desperately need. And Germany is on its way up to sky-high proportions to become the biggest, most powerful industrial and especially military complex the world has ever seen. I'm going to turn to a chapter in the book of Revelation, begin reading, and ask you a couple of questions about it. Chapter 15, verse 1. John is projected forward in his mind's eye into the future, into the time we live and the time just beyond us. He sees things in a sort of a technicolor, kaleidoscopic fashion, almost like a surrealistic science picture, fiction, uh, motion picture. He doesn't see nations and armies running around with tanks and laser-guided bombs. He sees beasts and animals and horns and all kinds of strange things that he writes about. I saw another sign in heaven, chapter 15, verse 1. Great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, because God's wrath is hardly contained anymore, and because God is growing very, very angry at our people and at mankind in general, and because a day of reckoning is coming. And it won't merely be a lot of preachers standing up in pulpits warning people about the consequences of sin. Almighty God Himself is going to shake this world like a rag in the jaws of a terrier, and it's going to be horrible to contemplate. 
And he said, And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass, a translucent platform made of gorgeous crystal that was practically transparent, mingled with fire, almost like it was giving off the radiant lies like the crystal chandelier or quartz or something of fine crystal. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on that sea of glass. You see that sea of glass portrayed elsewhere in the book of Revelation and also back in the first chapter and the tenth chapter of Ezekiel where it is like a huge platform right before the very throne of God. The sea of glass is depicting the judgment seat. It is depicting, as it were, appearing before God when he sets his hand to judge the world and establishes Jesus Christ as the King of kings and the Lord of lords on this earth. And these people are standing there ready to receive their reward. And it says they are those who have gotten the victory over the beast. Who and what is this beast? I have an article by that very title. Now, if I have time, we can go through Daniel, the second chapter where Daniel showed Nebuchadnezzar the meaning of that great image with ten toes, with a head of gold, with chest of silver, with belly and thighs of brass, with feet and legs, part of iron and part of miry clay that do not cleave one to another, and obviously with ten toes. And it said, In the days of these kings, meaning those ten toes, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And it talked about he saw, as it were, a rock, a stone, dislodged, miraculously, not with hands, that comes down like a shooting star from heaven and smashes that image on its feet. And then that stone grows to become a great mountain, a symbol of a nation or a government, and fills the whole earth. And then Daniel proceeds to tell Nebuchadnezzar exactly what that dream meant. And he said, You, O king, are the head of gold because you are a king of kings and many other nations are subservient to you and you are a world-ruling kingdom. And we know right down through history, and every commentary agrees, every biblical archaeologist confirms this. The spate of the archaeologist absolutely corroborates it. Ancient Babylon, followed by Persia, followed by Macedonia, Greco-Macedonia, Alexander's kingdom, followed by Rome with its many successive revivals down to the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ, when there will be a final so-called Holy Roman Empire. Quick little anecdotal statement, little footnote. From the very beginning, from the time of Otto the Great and before, the Habsburgs, Charlemagne, the popes crowned German emperors, German kings over the Holy Roman Empire. It was a Germanic kingdom in the heart of Europe and it would rise and grow to great proportions and collapse and rise and collapse because God clearly said through Daniel that it was to have these ten separate revivals and the last one is coming in our day. And finally, there is to be a great beast described in the 17th chapter of Revelation that has ten horns, meaning ten governments, and we'll get to that hopefully in a few minutes. Now, let me ask you this question. Was it last month, maybe on Tuesday at about 10 o'clock, that some of you in this room were aware that you were struggling with the beast? Stupid question, isn't it? You don't know what in the world I'm talking about. Well, let me ask you this question. Who are these people? It says they stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. 
And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous and just are thy works, God Almighty. Now, I can tell you that these are not a special little clique of people. These are not the members of some obscure cults of which you and I have never heard that are going to get some special kind of salvation over here on a so-called sea of glass. Neither is this somebody's figment of imagination or some wild dream. Neither was it discovered in a cereal box or a crystal ball or a secret compartment in a ring or a whistle. It is the prophecies of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, of an archangel, of the visions of John, which was the very favorite and most beloved of all the disciples of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the revelator, it says in the first chapter of this book, who reveals to us what it means. Now, let's go on to the 16th chapter and show you the opposite version of this. I heard a great voice out of the temple, verse 1, saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast. What is the beast? Well, the original beast, and there are four of them depicted in the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel, was like a lion. And that was Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, ancient Babylon. And the second one was like a bear. And that was Medo-Persia, under Cyrus the Great. The Greeks called him Artaxerxes. He allowed Ezra and Nehemiah to go back and build the temple. Long after Daniel lay moldering in his grave. For century after century after century, down to the time in which you and I live in Austin, Texas today, what that man Daniel to whom an archangel spoke and said, O Daniel, you are greatly beloved of God, and your prayer has come up before him, and he has heard you. That man, Daniel, put down the successive geopolitical governments to come and to hold sway over the entire world, decade after decade, millennium after millennium. And it has all come to pass, and it's coming to pass today. It says, There fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and them which worshipped his image. Two classes of people. I tell you, the ones who stand on the sea of glass are not a special group. It is merely God's description of the saints. It is God's description of the saved. It is God's description of his true church. That's all it is. It's not somebody special. It's not somebody different. The only differences here are you either struggle against something called the beast and the mark of the beast and the number of his name and you don't worship it and you fight it and you resist it or you give in to it, you adore it, you embrace it and you worship it. And if you do, you get God's wrath and God's plagues. And if you don't, you receive salvation. Now who gets victory when you struggle against something we want to now get into a little bit and find out what it is who achieved the victory here it said I saw a group of people on this sea of glass mingled with fire who had gotten the victory over the beast it doesn't say they got the victory over some uh, would-be televangelist that was lying to them and uh, cheating them and was fraudulent and some farce doesn't say they got the victory over some snake-handling uh, sect in the Okefenokee Swamp. doesn't say they got the victory over some religious fanatic. doesn't say they got the victory over some uh, credit card arrangement or the supermarket or, or Sears and Roebuck or the United States government. 
it says they got the victory over the beast. Now, ladies and brethren, gentlemen, this is a group of people who are Christian people, who are called of God, who have God's Holy Spirit, who get the victory over a political system, over, if you will, a geopolitical system, a global political system that is the most powerful government that has ever come along. They get the victory over the beast, and the beast is a political system, as we shall see, and over his image. Now, who got the victory when Christ died? The Jews thought they did. The Sanhedrin thought they did. The Romans thought they did. Satan thought he did. None of them got the victory. Christ did. You did. I did. Because Christ died. And by that, he got the victory. He was victorious. Now, it shows right here that some of those who are going to be victorious are going to go along that very same route. And they're going to see that same little pinprick of light at the end of a very dark tunnel. And that dark tunnel is the walkway, the path of life, the way of life, along which they must walk with Jesus Christ of Nazareth until that time of their last breath, whether it be martyrdom, whether it be torture, or anything horrible that might await them, they will never give in to this system. I submit to you that very few of you are ever aware of a time, a moment, or a day in your life when you are struggling against something called the beast. Does this mean that people never struggled against the beast before? Why, all down through history they struggled against it. From the time of Christ all the way down through the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and the Industrial Revolution, they struggled against it. And they struggled against its sign, its symbol, and its mark, because a mark is merely a label. It is like a, a symbol or an identifying sign. The mark on my jacket tells me where it was made. A mark is merely a mark. It, it's a, an ideologue or ideograph. It is a pictograph. It's a symbol. It stands for something. You need to get my booklet. Maybe there are some out here. Maybe not. Maybe we didn't bring enough of those. But if you get it, don't, if you just write for it and ask for it. Entitled, What is the Mark of the Beast? And study it. Because I can tell you that there are people every single fall who set their hand, having been converted at some time during the year, to obey God Almighty, to go and to worship Him at a place that He has designated as a place for His Feast of Tabernacles that depicts not only our tabernacling in the human flesh, this new creature in Christ, Christ tabernacling with mankind and being received back up to heaven, but also a projection forward into the way it will be in the kingdom of God. And they will go there for eight days, and it will be shortly after school starts. And they've got to pull their kids out of school. And some of them are told by their boss, you go down there, and your job isn't here when you get back. And I'll tell you some people who know what it is to struggle and to fight against an entire religio-economic system that is geared to Sunday, the day of the sun, solus invictus, and that is geared to the sign of the cross, that is geared to the worship of a global religious system called, quote, Christianity, end quote, which bears virtually no resemblance whatsoever to the message Jesus Christ brought 
or the church he founded or the practices and the policies of those apostles that he left behind. You will learn if you decide to obey God Almighty and keep his Sabbath day, you will learn what it means to struggle with the beast and with his mark. And eventually we will come to know the number of his name and where that label is placed and who it is and who is this false prophet, this great ecclesiastical system. Look at this plainly and ask yourself the question, since God describes all of the saints, his saints, the people who are going to be before the throne of judgment and right there before Jesus Christ to receive their reward as those who have gotten the victory over the beast. That's not my idea. It's there in, your, in, the, in the Bible, isn't it? That's their description. Well, when do you fight it? When did you ever fight it? When did you ever resist it? When did it cost you anything? Now, it goes on in the 13th chapter, and I'll go back and read that right now, to describe what is eventually going to happen. Let's read, beginning in chapter 13 and verse 1, read up to this and get a little bit about this beast. I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, if you will look in Daniel, the seventh chapter, at those four beasts. The first was like a lion, that was ancient Babylon. The second was like a bear, that was Medo-Persia, that had the three ribs of Lydia and some of the others in its, in its teeth. And then came the leopard, that was a symbol of Greco-Macedonia or Alexander the Great's empire. And then came a great weird-looking creature that had iron teeth and that stamped and devoured and break. And you've heard your history book tell you everywhere Rome went, Rome built. And they show you the aqueducts. That's nonsense everywhere Rome went, Rome destroyed. They destroyed other cultures. They burnt that huge Alexandria library and more than 200,000 clay impressions from the ancient Babylonian Tigris area around Nippur and Akkad. They destroyed civilizations and societies. They destroyed human life. And that was Rome. And it was to have successive revivals. Now we see a strange beast that embodies the most powerful parts of each of those creatures of the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel. And all of biblical eschatologists and students of the Bible and the commentaries know that Daniel and the Revelation work together in harmony, and the one helps you understand the other. This beast has seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns. And a crown is a symbol of a king, and the horn is a symbol of a government. And you can see that demonstrated by many of the prophecies and putting them together. Upon his heads a name that is blasphemous to God because it claims that it is holy. And it is a name of blasphemy because it is anything but. And the beast I saw was like unto a leopard. So its body was like the sinewy, powerful, springy, animal grace of a leopard. And his feet were as the feet of a bear. When I was bow hunting in Colorado a couple of years ago, I saw huge boulders, some of them almost as big as this platform, just rolled right out of the ground so a bear could get at the ants that were beneath it, or huge rotten stumps and logs just turned over and knocked down. Because you know that a bear, a grizzly, could grab the neck of a cow and with his hind legs literally disembowel a cow or a huge bull buffalo and then eat it. Because the bear doesn't bear hug people to death, it uses its powerful claws and its arms. They're so powerful. So the powerful part of a bear is its feet. And the mouth is the mouth of a lion. Look at the enormous size of a lion's head in connection with its body, as opposed to a cheetah or a leopard. A lion has gargantuan teeth and jaws, and they can crunch right through the bones of some of the biggest African antelope, something even like a Cape buffalo, and just eat right through the bone. 
And so each of the most powerful constituent parts of those beasts of the book of Daniel, the seventh chapter, are embodied in this one end-time system, which is of Satan the devil. It says here, the dragon gave him his power. And Revelation 12:9 says, the dragon is that great serpent, which is Satan, that deceives the whole world. It's a satanic government. Satan is very real. He is alive and well on planet Earth, which is the title of one of those men's books that I'm talking about. And he would love to overthrow and to cause to be destroyed God's servants and God's church. He doesn't hate false churches. He's already got them. He doesn't hate false prophets. He's already got them in his hip pocket. He doesn't hate con artists that get on television and try to rip off money from little old ladies in mobile home villages on Social Security. Satan's already got them in his hip pocket. But he hates this church. And he hates this work and he would like to destroy it. They worship the dragon. Now, I won't divert here into Satanism and demonism and witchcraft, but we were just discussing at lunch until it's almost something you don't even want to talk about, about some of these horrible things of dismemberment and of, of gang shootings and of just a kid that decides he wants to kill a couple of people and kills two little children and things like that, like the man up here in this city up to the north of us, between here and Tyler, that drove into that... Uh, I think it was a, not a Wyatt's, but a Luby's cafeteria and, and just shot those people and the little old lady whose husband was lying there and he'd already shot the husband and she said, don't kill me, don't kill me, and he just ho-hum and just shot her. You cannot understand how a human being can be so utterly brutal without knowing there is a devil and there are demons that can actually influence and possess and put thoughts into human minds. It's the only way you and I can even begin to comprehend that kind of bestiality, of brutality, that is rife in our society today. Right now, somewhere, innocent Americans are dying. Right now, somewhere, in Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, Dallas, maybe here in Austin, young women are being raped. Right now, little children are being abused. Right now, people are dismembering other people. And this one filthy brute in Chicago dismembered them and even ate their flesh and kept portions of human bodies in his refrigerator. You had better believe God's word when God Almighty says there is coming a political system that Satan, the devil, is going to empower, he's going to inspire its leaders, he's going to inspire its slogans, he's going to inspire the fanaticism of its followers, he's going to inspire its political and its military objectives and goals, which is the destruction of the human race. And if Satan the devil could bring it about, the destruction of every last man, woman, and child on the face of this earth, that's what he wants. God's not going to allow him to have it, but that's what he wants. It's a system that Satan the devil empowers. He sees one of the heads as it were wounded to death, and the deadly wound was healed. I won't go into that or the Protestant Reformation or other aspects of it having to do with Belisarius in 554, the collapse in 476, because that's a great deal of history. But I think you'll see some of that in the one about who, what is the beast, and other things that I've written on the subject. And they worshipped the dragon, verse 4, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast. So here is state worship, the worship of a political system, not just a church, not just a church leader, but a political system, because the beast is a political system of a combination of ten nations into one agglomeration of a supranational state that I have called, because I think that will be its final name, but I could be wrong about that, a United States of Europe. And they said, 
Who is like unto the beast who is able to make war with him? So they revel in his military might, his military power. Americans were given a brief euphoric excitement, a new wave of patriotism that lasted for about a month. And then the Democrats got busy, and the media got busy, and the economy started coming apart, and suddenly it was all George's fault. There are even those who have forgotten how many times President Reagan came before the microphones and asked and almost begged Congress for a line-item veto, and how George Bush has done the same thing, and that he's got to deal with a recalcitrant, stiff-necked Democratic Congress and can't even get his programs through. It's his fault. It's his fault people up there in Maryland are out of a job. It's his fault people in Austin, Texas are out of a job. He did it, and that's the way people think, and that is about the level of their understanding, and that's why it may cost him the White House this November. And I'm not saying George Bush is a good president. He's not necessarily even one of the better ones. He may be one of the poorer ones because he's trying to manage everything with bailing wire and chewing gum and Band-Aids and hand a little bit out here and that $400 per American family in one year for pity's sake. That is a drop in the bucket to what is really needed to be done in this society and this economy of ours. It doesn't even touch the problem. You don't go along like some of these dumb ads. I think they ought to actually arrest people for that kind of thing. It shows people at a checkout stand handing away packs of dollar bills because they're advertising some bank. They give away money like that. Not on your tin type. I'll tell you what, it's got to take me three days to give them a statement and go through that many papers and about my paternal grandmother's good name back up in Iowa before they'll, they'll you know, loan me $10 and then they want it and maybe 12, 13 to 17% interest. They can talk about interest lowering, interest rates lowering. Notice how it's always six, eight months that the banks and all the SNLs and all the other people and mortgage companies follow along. When they go up, notice how quick they, they tack it on. Same day. <laughs> Interesting. The way the economy works. Interesting. All right. It says here, they marveled because of his military might, and it was given unto him a mouth. There is a spokesperson who speaks to these geopolitical goals, military goals of this great system speaking great things and blasphemies, and this whole thing is going to only going to endure for three and one-half literal years. Forty-two months. It'll come together. It will endure for three and a half years. And that three and a half year period is elsewhere called, in the Word of God, the Great Tribulation. The last part of it, the last one year of it, is the Day of the Lord, interrupted by the heavenly signs that are depicted in the sixth chapter and the seventh chapter of the book of Revelation. He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints. And to those who believe they're going to take a DC-10 with an angel for a bolt in the wing and land somewhere near Petra in the desert, it says in the Word of God, and to overcome them. Who won the victory? Stephen or the people who stoned him to death? Well, the people who killed him thought they did, but Stephen won the victory. Who won the victory? The Roman government, when they crucified Peter upside down? No, Peter did, and God did, and Christ did. There are those, including the two witnesses of whom we read in Revelation the 11th chapter, who are going to be given the inestimable honor of dying for the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And they will never recant and they will never change their message, and they will not water it down, and they won't be mealy-mouthed about it. They will be so direct 
that the people to whom they carry the message will want to stop their ears and scream in a rage and kill them exactly as they did when Stephen gave them his last dying testimony. They said, away with this pestilent fellow. They couldn't stand him. They wanted to stone him to death and get rid of his testimony because he just cut them right to the core. To make war with the saints and to overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. This is a global, a world-ruling system for its brief day in the sun. Now it goes on to talk about an image that is to be made. And if you read about how the original church that became the great visible church that emerged after the second century, that really began to become organized by the third century, about 325, 333 A.D., at the time of the Council of Nicaea and Laodicea. And if you really understand that there were people who were clinging to God's Sabbath all the way to 664 in the nation of England at the time of the Council of Whitby, when some of those people went along with those churches, uh, that church's dictates, and you understand the Quartodeciman controversy that raged for perhaps 600 years and more, where people were clinging to Quartodeciman, it merely means the 14th, and that means the 14th of Nisan, because that is the day on which Jesus Christ of Nazareth changed the symbols to the bread and wine and said, Take, eat, drink ye all of it. This is my body that was broken for you. This is my blood that is shed for you. And Christians continue to observe the symbols of that New Testament Lord's Supper or Passover, and they did it on the very same day Jesus did, and they were put to death by the thousands because a great political church which had emerged and reared its ugly head above fragmented little groups of people meeting in private scared for their lives was now supplanting and calling itself Christian, and it was anything but. And the true church was a group of scattered, little, frightened, scared refugees existing here and there in secret and not able to do any work of any great proportions until perhaps the days of Peter Waldo and Peter Arnold and the Petrobrusians named after Peter de Bruys and some others in the Middle Ages coming down to the day of Tyndall and Wycliffe and some other great men that began to at least see part of the truth. They didn't see it all, but eventually we come down to the days of the Lollards and we come down to the days of the American Revolution and we can find that at all times, in all cases, in all nations scattered around the earth, there were people who were clinging to God's seventh-day Sabbath and there were people keeping His annual holy days. We were astounded when we came across a group in San Marino, one of the little Lilliputian nations of Europe. It's in the heart of Italy, right up in the mountains north of the Vatican. And there were people in that little tiny nation that were descendants of the Valdensians, and they were observing the seventh-day Sabbath to this day. Right there, surrounded by Catholics in the nation of Italy. There have been people who have fought the beast, and who have fought the image of the beast and the number of his name. And it says here, all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That again is a, let's say, spiritual metaphor. Or is it literal? Is your name, I don't want to frighten you, but let me just ask you what you think. You might tend to sell yourself short. Is your name known to God? It's probably not known to too many walking around the streets of Baltimore right now. You know so-and-so down in Austin? Who? But is your name known to God? Well, is your name written up there? You know, I've talked about the Vietnam War Memorial. You've all seen it on television, and I've seen it in person. And while I was there, I saw people taking a piece of paper and a pencil or a Crayola and go there and sketch and to get an impression and take that home and frame it and to put their hands on that etched name in that black marble and just weep like a baby because that was somebody's husband or son or father or brother 
who died in Vietnam. And that name being etched there in that black marble means so much to the relatives who lost those young men and every name of every young man in all the services who died in Vietnam has his name inscribed in that memorial and I can think of no more beautiful, no more fitting monument. I mean, what's a man on a horse or some general? They ordered a lot of young men to their death and didn't have any business doing it as opposed to putting the names of every one of those men who died. Now that's something. Think about it and wonder if the time is going to come or an angel is going to stand there and say, let me show you, and go through the big book and you see your name. Is that going to mean anything at all? How does that happen? How do you get there? How do you get your name written in the book of life? You repent. Repent of what? You repent of sin. What is sin? It's the breaking of God's Ten Commandments as magnified by Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, which makes it infinitely more binding upon us because it covers every nuance of human behavior. It covers thought. You will come to know when you really study overcoming and what it means to overcome, why it is Jesus Christ of Nazareth struggled and fought why he had to struggle as he did against every temptation. Why the Apostle Paul wrote, O wretched man that I am, the good that I wish I would, I find myself not doing. The evil that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And there's this struggle going on inside of me. And I hate it. Maybe God will finally release me from this body and from this struggle that goes on every day. We get letters by the dozens that talk about that struggle. We get letters every Friday morning from people going through the most agonizing trauma People with drug problems, people with sex problems, people who just lie all the time, people with every kind of evil appetite, every evil habit. We had a young homosexual that was just just vomiting up his whole life to us in a letter. He hates it. He doesn't want to be that way. But he finds himself slipping back. And he abhors it. And he hates himself when he does it. Help me. Pray for me. Well, of course you want to pray for them. And you hope that God gives them help. That's what Jesus Christ is talking about when he said to repent and believe the gospel. Now, most people, when they, quote, come to repentance, they just sort of appropriate Christ. They say, well, I believe you, Jesus. They put a bumper sticker, honk, if you love Jesus. They go to church once in a while. There they are. They're, they're Jesus people now. But what's different about them? Are they fighting the beast and his image and his mark and the number of his name? Is there any struggle involved? Does it cost them economically? This is talking as we look now in the last part of the 13th chapter. Here's this great ecclesiastical figure now. Now we're moving not to the beast but the false prophet. And these are the two human beings who figure so prominently in these great events at the time of the tribulation and the day of the Lord. Read your 19th chapter of the book of Revelation very, very slowly. Read all the way to the description of the second coming of Christ and read as you see what is the first act, in a sense you might say a physical act, that Jesus Christ is going to perform when he stands on Mount Zion. He's going to grab a human being called the beast. And he is that super dictator, that one king above those other ten kings. He's going to grab him and crank his shirt right up into his fist. He's going to grab another one that's been out there mouthing off all these blasphemies, standing there in his dress, the weird-looking hat, and he's going to grab him like that. He's going to march to the edge of a place called Gina, and he's going to kick them off into a blazing inferno with fire waiting at the bottom. And it says so in your Bible. He's going to put them to death. 
How's that for criminal justice? Does that happen in our society? Why? They don't even slap them on the wrist anymore. They got a revolving door in the jail. They come in, fingerprint them, take their picture, and say, go ahead and kill somebody else. I suggested to a group of little old ladies in Palestine, Texas one time because there had been a young man who would actually knock a little old lady to the ground and kicked her in the mouth for good measure and broke her dentures and put her in the hospital. And I suggested what ought to happen is they ought to spread eagle in and manacle in the floor and the sheriff's deputy wearing a number 12 caulked logger's boot, that's the one with spikes in it, ought to come running at him and drop kick him right in the face. And they all came out of their chair and applauded. That was the most bloodthirsty bunch of little old ladies I have ever talked to in my life. Because they, they knew that that was justice, that was fair. God says, if burning, then burning. He says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that's the way to put it out from among us. Well, notice that it says here that this is an ecclesiastical system. That this man, this great being now, is like a lamb, so it's a pseudo-Christ, masquerading as Christ in verse 11, but speaks as a dragon. And he exercises the power of the first beast before him, so he has the power to exercise political and military power. Did you read the last issue, current newsstand issue of Time magazine? Have you seen the cover? Did you read about the private conspiracy between George Bush and the Pope? Read it. It'll blow your mind. Reagan, I believe, and the Pope as well. It's interesting. Fascinating, because you see, the Vatican is a state, and they were, Reagan especially, complicit in helping to pry Poland loose from the Soviet Union, and the CIA secretly spent who knows how many millions upon millions of dollars to, by all kinds of devious methods, smuggle into Poland fax machines, electronic printing equipment and instruments to keep the solidarity movement alive. And it was smuggled into Catholic churches and the priests and the prelates in that nation at the behest of and the cooperation of and with the Pope being supplied by the American government, the White House, and the CIA help keep solidarity alive and wrest Poland loose from the Iron Curtain. And it's in the current issue of Time magazine. Now, when you see in the Word of God that it talks about a great ecclesiastical figure who has concourse with kings and presidents and premiers and prime ministers and is involved in politics, and then you read an article like that that came out right now in February 1992, it really does underline the vivid reality of biblical prophecy and what is going on, what this is all about. Notice that he, verse 13, doeth great wonders. This is a miracle-working power. And Satan, the devil, is there to provide those wonders. Satan, the devil, was able to cause a whirlwind to destroy the home and kill the family of Job. Satan was able to afflict Job with boils from the head of his foot, to, I should say, top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Satan, the devil, is called the prince of the power of the air, and he can perform miracles. Miracles are not the test of truth. God's Word plainly says if a prophet comes along and shows you a sign, and the sign comes to pass, but his message is you don't have to obey God. Don't go out after that prophet. He's a false prophet. But people will sit around and say, I want a miracle. And listen to some absolute fraudulent farce, guilty of every kind of lying, cheating, and chicanery, making fools of them, as it says in the Bible, making merchandise of you, and just ripping off people for their money and pretending that he's some kind of a preacher. And there are plenty of them out there. 
They're willing to rip off the general public. I thank God I can look at myself when I shave and know that I have never charged for literature and even tapes and all this. And in 38 solid years, I'm able to say, we give away the truth of God. We don't put a price tag on the gospel. We don't go out and beg the general public. We don't even take collections up in our church. Ask Mr. Sherrick. They never pass a hat. We don't even take collections in the church. We do when God Almighty commands it on those annual holy days only. And even then, I go out of my way to make all kinds of apologies. Say, if you're a visitor, we don't mean you. Just pass the basket on beyond you because we don't want to offend anybody. You can't find a more ethical way to approach the general public in preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God than that. There isn't any more ethical way because it's God's way. Now, he goes on to say, He deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles that he had power to do in the sight of the beast. That is, in concourse with and, of course, in collusion with him because it is both a religio-military system. The two are cooperating. They are two companions, two partners, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make this image. And that is the way that a Romish church originally was constructed with what is called the Senate or the College of Cardinals, the Collegia and the greater and the lesser diocese. And that was the political system of ancient Rome that has been attached to a great religious organization. He had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Read about the Spanish Inquisition. Read about the tens of thousands, actually countless millions of human beings, who were even suspected by neighbors or others who in some cases merely wanted to rip off their farm or their home or their village of being guilty of some kind of a hidden sin and how they were put on the rack and tortured to death by leaders of a church. Now that doesn't sound like what ministers or members of a church are supposed to be doing to each other, but history is replete with those lessons. And he causes all, verse 16, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand, that is a symbol of agreement. It is a, silly, a, a symbol, I'm sorry, of willingness to cooperate. Some people speculate it may be something that is implanted under the skin. I really doubt that, but it's not beyond the ultimate realm of possibility, is it? Not beyond the realm of possibility. But I do hesitate to let you think that because of this. There is ample biblical evidence which demonstrates, don't ever forget this, that having to do with the worship of the beast and his image or the rejection of it is at all times voluntary. You cannot have salvation taken away from you. Don't listen to the siren song of would-be evangelists and others that are scaring people to death, have them run around, look at a striation on a package of bread and a supermarket scanner, for pity's sake. All it does is take one more loaf off inventory and give the, the taxes and the amount of money you owe. That's all in the world as little striations do. Nothing more than that. It's just a little laser deal is quicker than a cash register. That's all it is. But there are a lot of people around the United States who think that's part of the mark of the beast. Or they think your Sears and Roebuck credit card is part of the mark of the beast. Or if they ever find a 666 on a dollar bill, they say, ah, I can't spend that one. That's the mark of the beast. And they're looking all over the place to try to find the mark of the beast. And these people are playing on those fears. It cannot be imposed upon you. Satan the devil cannot rob you of salvation. Almighty God says that He will never let you go once He has gained you for His kingdom, so far as He is concerned, and you're a free moral agent and the only human being, the only being in the universe that can make a decision about whether you are saved or lost is you. Nobody can take salvation away from you. Nobody can force you to worship the beast and receive His mark and worship His image. 
So believe that because it's true. That no man, notice verse 17, might buy or sell. Now that means you can't survive economically, doesn't it? You can't live and work and get along in society unless he had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And that's going to be imposed, I believe, in the future. And it may involve a change in the calendar. When I travel to Columbia, you know what the, the uh, first day of the week is down there? Monday. It's right there on the, on the daily, daily headlines. In those Catholic countries in Central and South America, Sunday is the seventh day of the week. It's nonsense, but that's the way they do it. And people like to call Sunday the Sabbath. Dr. Billy Graham does. A lot of people do. They talk about the Sabbath and this Sabbath day. There are even church hymnals in some of the Sunday-keeping churches that refer to the day they're in church, of Solus Invictus, Sunday, the day of the sun, as Sabbath. Well, Sabbath, Shabbat, is the only day of the week from creation till now that God ever dignified with a name. God just said one, two, three, four, five, six for the other ones. But Shabbat had a name. Monday's not the day of the moon. And the next day after, it's not the day of Thus. And the day after that's not Woden's day. The day after that doesn't belong to Thor. The day after that is not Freya or Freya's day. And the day after that isn't the day of Saturn. And the day after that is not the day of Solus Invictus or the so-called Almighty Sun. It's just the first day of the week, a work day. Now you think about whether or not if you decide to put your hand to the plow and obey God and keep His weekly Sabbath and you work for the postal department or you work for the airlines or you're a nurse or you run a motel or you work for a dairy that has 147 cows that will get mastitis and groan with pain, all of them with milk going everywhere and they're sick and lying around, moo, where is he? Because you're supposed to be milking the dumb cow and it's the Sabbath and you can't do it. You think about the jobs in our society that Sabbatarian Sabbath keepers cannot have and how many people have lost their jobs. I mean, I've heard about, them, about the hundreds who want to begin obeying God and come to His annual festivals and so on and just are persecuted. They're persecuted. Their children are at school. The teachers are snippy and snotty and won't let them off. Their bosses threaten them and sometimes they're fired and sometimes it has just canceled out people's savings and their fortunes and, and what they've worked so hard to accumulate and they decide I'm going to trust God and they lose it all. It's painful. But that's the price. No man might buy or sell save he had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now Almighty God, I go back to remind you again, says in the 15th chapter, I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire and them that had gotten the victory over the beast. I'm going to speak plainly. I believe that the beast is a United States of Europe with Germany at its head. And I believe the beast will be a German, a super dictator who is going to emerge, and there are going to be plenty of other little dictators, because in just a few moments I'm going to give you a nutshell of what the future is going to bring in the next 10, 15 years if we last that long. First, a great global depression. It's going to come. The bottom is going to fall out. And the United States of America, I tell you, in the name of Jesus Christ, is going to look like a third world country. We're going to look like Bangladesh before it's all over with gangs running around the countryside taking dwindling means of survival from helpless neighbors and people are going to be in the United States taking things away from each other at gunpoint. 
everything we know as the infrastructure of society that we think of as any kind of law and order is almost gone already. But the time is going to come when it will be totally gone and there won't be any protection for anybody except in the name of Jesus Christ. And you'd better be calling on God and getting your knees because the police won't protect you. And they're not doing it now, are they? You've got to look out for yourself. A great global depression is coming. And Japan is going down with us. And they're going to hate us for it. And Germany is going down with us. And they're going to hate us for it. And out of that are going to come militaristic dictatorships all over Central Europe, all through the communist countries, all over, especially in Japan. Military generals, military dictators are going to take over the government and put people back to work at the point of a gun. They're going to cancel debts, nationalize institutions and industries. They're going to forget all this global infrastructure of everybody owing everybody some great debt. They just say, oh, who? Forget it. And that's when war gets started. And shortly after that, World War III, a nuclear exchange is going to occur. And it will be Germany at the helm of the United States of Europe that moves into Palestine. But not until a nuclear exchange and probably millions in Tel Aviv and Haifa and other Arab capitals are going to die. The Pope is going to intervene. He's going to move under the argument that the great leader of the Christian church is going to go back to the birthplace of that church, back to Jerusalem, and he's going to move into a building which I believe is going to be built by some recalcitrant extremist Jews that is going to just so enrage the Arab world you won't believe it. And I refer to a new temple because the Word of God says, When you see the abomination of desolation stand in the holy place where it ought not, then let them which be in Judea flee to the mountains. And at that time, it will be too late for the United States of America because we will already have been brought to our knees and God's Word strongly suggests in the book of Ezekiel, the first several chapters, that up to one-third of our people are going to be dead of disease Another third are going to be killed in warfare, and the remaining one-third are going to be carried captive into different nations all around the earth to be scullery maids and servants in the fields and the factories for conquerors who are going to break the back of this great nation if we do not turn to God. How I wish I could have given George Bush's speech for him when he talked about the state of this nation, because I would have taken Isaiah's analogy of the sickness of the body, and I would have given a speech that had to do with the need for the United States of America to have a great moral and a spiritual reawakening, to recapture a work ethic, to become once again at least partially honest, to become a nation you can trust, to become a nation of decent law-abiding citizens, to get off drugs and pornography and alcohol, and to get off this pleasure-seeking binge of trying to satisfy ourselves with every conceivable human lust and appetite, and to repent before God Almighty. I would have given them a little bit of Churchill, but I can promise you nothing but blood and sweat and toil and tears. But if we should survive for a thousand years, they will say this was their finest hour. This nation didn't need band-aids and $400 a year and chewing gum and bailing wire. It needed spiritual and moral leadership. And you tell me about the sticks and the other guys scrambling for the White House this coming November. Where is he? I've said time and again, when you show me a politician with the love and mercy of Christ and the patience of Job and the wisdom of Solomon and maybe the brain of Henry Kissinger, I'll vote for him. But not until that time. Well, it's been good being with you briefly. I know that some of you are getting tired. I could go for another four hours. 
And I wouldn't even touch the surface if I did that. So I, I won't. I promise I won't do that. I'm over time. All of you who raised your hands, please, if you're not on that magazine subscription list, do get a copy of it. And if they're gone, if we didn't bring it up, then just give your address to any one of the ones wearing a, a label here and let us give it to you free of charge and you read it. I don't want to write those articles for nothing at all. I put a lot of of sweat into those articles and I put a lot of information in them and I'll tell you a lot of the things I've said here especially about Germany and Japan are in the January and the February issue and I hope you'll want to get it. God bless you all. Thank you for coming. God go with you on the way home.